This is a house that Jack built, y'all. Remember this house. This was the land that he worked by hand. It was the dream of an upright man. There was a room that was filled with love. It was a love that I was proud of. This is the life of the life that he planned. On the love, the same old love. In the house that Jack built. The house that Jack built. Remember this house. There was a fence that held our love. This is Rumble. And I am Michael Moore. Welcome, everyone. For those of you uh, who are regular listeners to Rumble, you know that I've actually been uh, surprisingly, uh, generally um, optimistic during these first few months of the Biden-Harris administration. But I speak honestly from, you know, sometimes it's just from my gut and my heart. Unfortunately, sometimes it's not from my brain. But uh, but the brain is always talking to me, and of course that's where the conscience lies too. I just but I have to say this, and I think many of you feel this, you know it, but it needs to be said now. Now, when I say now, I mean this week, this month, more than ever. The forty plus year reign of Reagan and Thatcher, who live on. The this reign, <laughs> this reign of terror that both Republicans and Democrats have governed under. And they've done so with an ideology that, quote, government is bad and government must be stopped. We have lived with that now for 40 years. And it contains within it a certain belief system that says that private profit-making corporations are always superior to the government. They'll always do a better job than the government. And when it comes to providing critical public services to people, well, either the people don't really need them, or if they do, private industry, private corporations, the profit motive is what will save the people, what will serve the people. And if anything gets in the way of making those profits, be it labor unions or regulations, ooh, regulations, they must be eliminated. And that, my friends, is the biggest scourge that we face. And the key word, when you ever want to run the key word of that scourge, it's whenever you hear the word deficit. The deficit, the deficit that's caused by government spending on Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. You know, things that actually help people out, but not, of course, no. It's not ever caused, that deficit's never caused by our massive military budget or tax breaks for the rich or giant corporations. No, 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 that's not the problem. Let me just be very clear. It is this worldview that I've just described that has been killing us. And I mean literally killing us for the past 40 years. Over and over, Republicans have been telling us during this time that the government is evil. Then 
they get elected, Republicans, and they're running the government, and they actually turn this this idea that the government's evil, they actually make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. They make it evil. They make people hate the government. They run the biggest deficits. They line the pockets of their corporate masters. And then the average American just starts to feel like, yeah, government doesn't do anything for me. Of course it doesn't. The Republicans who've been running this show have made sure that it doesn't. It's set up for them. But it's not just the Republicans. It's this worldview that led to the Democratic president, Bill Clinton, declaring, and I'm quoting him, the era of big government is over. Remember that? And then he presided over the slashing of welfare and an awful lot of job-killing and union-killing trade deals like NAFTA. And he presided over the deregulation, in other words, removing the oversight and the overseers and the cops of the banking industry. Stripped it away. We later saw what happened due to that. It's also this worldview that led Democratic President Obama, who I voted for, who I still love, but it it led to him, him, passing a massive health care bill, which, okay, many excellent features in Obamacare, pre-existing conditions, you're on your parents' uh, health insurance till you're 26, lots of good things, but it kept the one thing that was that is essentially the kill switch of it ever being true universal health care, and that's making sure that the private for-profit health insurance industry and the for-profit hospitals, it kept them, Obamacare, kept them in charge of our health care system. And it has kept every single one of us at their mercy. And it's this Reagan-Thatcher worldview that brought an ambitious senator from Delaware back in the day who always went along with this during his quest for power and his multiple attempts to become president throughout his career. But something is changing. Something has changed. Maybe it took us suffering through four years of Trump. Maybe it took Biden those four years. Maybe it took his good friend Bernie talking to him quietly, gently, appealing to his conscience. I don't know what, but, you know, listen, (laughs) we, when I say we, um, you know, on the left, let's just call it the left for now, progressives. We didn't win all the primaries that we wanted to win in 2020, and we didn't win, ultimately, the nomination for the presidency. But, amazingly, in these first weeks and months, we seem to be winning the war of ideas with the American public. And in some ways, with Joe Biden himself, who has, for whatever reason, not gone to the right like I thought he would, but has inched his way toward the left. 
So this Reagan-Thatcher worldview that has been suffocating us, that's been exposed and discredited over and over and over again as being cruel and inhumane and unjust, and that puts greed and profit over the needs of people, well, as we now have seen, I hate to say thanks to COVID because it doesn't deserve any of my goddamn thanks, but what have we seen now in this past year and especially in these past months? That Reagan-Thatcher worldview cannot be defended anymore. We appear right now to be entering a political realignment where the old lies about deficits, about labor unions, about regulations, and most importantly, about the massive need for government intervention and government spending, spending money to help its citizens. The, the way that the American public is looking at that now is changing. It has changed. And remarkably, miraculously, uh, gratefully, Joe Biden is changing along with us. As someone recently said, I saw this on Twitter, she wrote, the era of, quote, the era of big government is over. Well, that's over. The most recent example of this is the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that the Democrats passed without any help from the Republicans who were busy talking about Dr. Zeus and Cardi B. Their lame, phony attempts at crying about the deficit, the deficit, fell on the deaf ears of 200 plus million Americans who rightly ignored them. And the best part of this, my friends, is that the polling, all the polls for this, taking this kind of government action, in other words, the government intervening in the economy, in jobs, infrastructure, healthcare, childcare, education, the polls are through the roof in support of what Biden is doing. Most of the polls are he's polling around 70% on these issues. This is amazing, which means that it's a bipartisan support, not bipartisan support in Congress. No, no, no. That's a, that, the Senate, Republicans, that's a lost cause. And hopefully they're in the process of just imploding. Hello, Whigs. But with the American people, our fellow Americans, even the ones that we don't agree with and they don't agree with us on many issues, they do agree that we need our our United States government. Which government is that? The one that's, let me see, what was it called? For the people, by the people, of the people, we, the people, that government. The majority of our fellow Republicans even on many of these issues are supportive of it. And not just on these economic issues. I'm talking about voting rights. I'm talking about gun control. It's a moment we need to seize because we have just enough of our fellow Americans who call themselves Republicans to say, hey, I want to be on this train. They want this. They need this. And they are demanding it. But make no mistake, my friends, the Democrats have not yet returned to being the party of FDR. (laughs) There is still a long way to go and many battles to fight to get the things that we all need 
And the next one up here now is going to be infrastructure. One week ago, President Biden unveiled his American Jobs Act in Pittsburgh. And this act will dedicate trillions more dollars into roads, bridges, the electrical grid, water pipes, hello Flint, Michigan, broadband internet for everybody, and what Biden called our caregiving infrastructure. Wow, caregiving? Care? That's the purpose of government, isn't it? My friends, I am so honored to have joining me right now to discuss this is David Dayan. He is the executive editor of The American Prospect. And if you are not reading The American Prospect, I encourage you to do so. It's one of the best things you can read. You can read it online. You can go to their site. after. I'll put a link on my, on my page here to read, to subscribe to The American Prospect. This is the kind of magazine that we need right now. And I am so happy uh, to have David here. He's also the author of books such as Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, and the book Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. This is the brother from another mother that I have yet to meet, and I am so happy to have him here on my podcast today. Please, everyone, welcome David Dayan to Rumble. David. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being here, and thank you for the work that you do. I'll also try to put a couple of my favorite, some of your most recent writing. You've been covering your version of the 100 days uh, in, in, in these first, what are we, in the, we're in the 60s now? I think we're in the 70s, actually, but yes. Oh, we're in the 70s now. Wow. Time is flying by. But you've you just listened to my somewhat optimistic uh, introduction. I think it's realistic, but there is this sort of tone of hope. And I hate that word. Everybody listens to this uh, podcast knows it's one of my, it's one of the dirtiest words, dirtiest words in the English language. And in fact, we, when we run into people who are filled with all this hope, we tell them that they're on hopium and they, and they need to seek some sort of assistance. But, but so I'm, let me just start by giving you the opportunity to throw a cold bucket of water on my enthusiasm. Well, well, let me say a couple things in, in reaction. Uh, I mean, I, I think, first of all, if you think about this war for the battle of ideas within the Democratic Party and where it has gone reflected in some of the policies that we've seen early on here in the Biden administration, you have to say that that war was won by progressives or the left in the years leading up to the Biden presidency. It, it really was, uh, the groundwork was laid way, way before then. And uh, I wrote a story last year when it was clear that Biden was going to be the nominee and I called it Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Biden. And it was, <laughs> right. uh, the, the idea was, who are we going to get? Are we going to get the guy who uh, worked on things like the crime bill in 1994 or bankruptcy bill in, in 2005, which uh, prevented so many people who were destitute from accessing bankruptcy? Uh, or, we're, or were we going to get the person who always positions himself in the center, in the mainstream of the Democratic Party? And that was a party that had shifted way to the left, thanks to 
people like yourself, thanks to uh, Bernie Sanders and his campaigns, thanks to the campaigns of people like AOC. Uh, This has moved the center of gravity. And was Biden going to shift with it? And I think what we've seen in these first uh, 11 weeks is that that's what's happened. He he has moved as both the party and the country has moved. And I think the pandemic was a big trigger for this because it, it laid bare, it exposed these fault lines within our society. And uh, many of the, the groups, the, the vulnerable groups who have suffered so much in this, in this crisis uh, line up very, very much with Biden's base of support, uh, African-Americans, poorer Americans, Latinos, what have you. So I I think that is to to, to sort of set the context. It's Biden shifting where he felt the country had been shifting and moving along with it. They say sometimes, what, that politicians get in front of a parade, they run out into the front and then decide that they're leading it. I mean, I think that's kind of what you're seeing here is, is that Biden is going with the mood of the country and then getting in front of it and saying, I'm, I'm leading the parade. So uh, th- there's, there's room, uh, not, not to use the word, but there is room to be hopeful there. Um, what we're talking about is two, two pieces of legislation, right? So we had the American Rescue Plan, the, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill which, as you correctly indicate, has some great stuff in it, uh, uh, some of which even is going to be lasting. Uh, public infrastructure things, things, uh, you know, there's $120 billion, I believe, for home, uh, for schools, I should say, in the bill, uh, which can go towards, you know, improving uh, uh, ventilation systems and upgrades that, that schools have needed for a long time. So that's one example. And, and will benefit schools for decades. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, one of the objections to the American Rescue Plan is, oh, it's all temporary. There's, there's not going to be anything lasting here. And that's not really the case. There, there, there is uh, a lot uh, that can go in discrete terms to lasting pieces of infrastructure. However, the two biggest parts of that bill are temporary. Uh, and those are the social welfare aspects. This ex- heavily expanded child tax credit, uh, up to $3,600 a year for uh, children under the age of six, about $3,000 for kids between the ages of six and 18. So that's a huge boost for families to prevent child poverty. And then you have uh, the improvements to the current flawed structure of the Affordable Care Act, which actually is, is, is a huge expansion. It says that if you uh, want health care, you, no matter who, who you are or how much you make, you're only going to pay a certain percentage of that income uh, to a health insurance company. And it's much less. I mean, there was a cliff mm-hmm. in the initial way that the ACA was structured where uh, poorer people were paying something like 8% of their income and then as soon as you hit that subsidy level where it tailed off, you could pay as much as 20% of your income right. in health insurance. And that changed. So it's, it's under the same structure, but it's, it's much reduced, especially for the middle class. That only lasts for two years. The expanded child tax credit only lasts for one year. 
So there was still a need to do these permanent investments in uh, both uh, social welfare and also the built environment of the United States. And that's what's come together in this new package, uh, the first part of which we've seen, the American Jobs Plan. I guess there's going to be a second part that deals with more of the, the social welfare aspects uh, called the American Families Plan. But for what we've seen right now, there is a tremendous amount of policy in this latest thing that's been introduced. It's, a, it's $2 trillion, $2.25 trillion, I believe exactly, paid for uh, uh, entirely through increases. Uh, it's not entirely paid for, it's about half paid for, but it's entirely through increases to corporate taxes. So corporations would be paying uh, the freight for these needed public investments. Uh, and and it, it, they're so extensive that I can't really even go into it <laughs> fully right now. It it's, 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 looks at infrastructure in a very expansive and I would argue correct way in terms of not just roads and bridges and ports and airports, uh, not just mass transit in terms of a huge investment in trains, uh, not just uh, things like the electrical grid and replacing every uh, 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 lead pipe in America that, that provides water uh, to, to homes uh, and potentially to schools. Um, but it's also things like broadband, like universal broadband, uh, right. saying that that is part of our infrastructure. That is something that people rely on every day and need uh, in order to function in society. And so we are going to put an effort forward to ensure that that gets out to everybody in America. It includes things like capping orphan oil and gas wells all over this country, which are leaking noxious gases into the atmosphere. And, you know, uh, the idea here is that it's part of our infrastructure to clean our planet, to, to, to make sure that these things that we left behind after we sucked all the oil out of the ground that we could get uh, aren't continuing to poison us. Um, and there are cleanups to Superfund sites. There's more money for that. There's retooling of idle factories, which are parts of the built environment that have just been allowed to mothball and uh, taking them and revitalizing them and rebuilding domestic industrial policy and, and, and increasing manufacturing here at home. Uh, it's expanding uh, home and community-based services for the elderly and expanding care work for the elderly in a way that uh, moves the care infrastructure back into the home rather than these nursing homes where we've seen uh, mm. these, these terrible stories of during the pandemic of hundreds of thousands of, of, of nursing home residents and staff dying because they were in these environments, many of them owned by private equity firms that don't put a premium on quality or, or safety uh, uh, that, that were causing these almost death traps, uh, moving people back to where they have a choice. Do you want to live out your years in a, a group environment? Or do you want to live it at home? And we're going to give you the money to make that choice. Um, so I, I, those are really just a few of the ideas in here, many of which are expansive, but many of which are also extremely vague. So what we have right now is a 25-page fact sheet from the Biden administration. And there's so much policy in this that each 
piece of policy gets a sentence or two. And it's not entirely clear what uh, what that's going to mean. I'll just take an issue that I'm sure is very near and dear to you, which is uh, lead pipes, right? right. And, yes. and replacing all the lead pipes in America. Do you think that the government actually knows how many lead pipes there are that deliver water in America? <laughs> if you said yes, you would be wrong. Uh, there, uh, a lot of these systems were built a hundred years ago. There is not really great record keeping. Uh, the first thing you have to do, if you're going to say, we have to get rid of all the lead pipes in America that are delivering water to people is you have to find the lead pipes. You have to do like this massive surveying effort across the entire country to figure out where the pipes are. And then the second part of that is that, uh, if you are talking about service pipes that go into the home, uh, part of that, that infrastructure goes from the water main directly into the home, and part of it is on the property of the individual. And in some states, you need consent to actually replace that part of the pipe. And if you don't replace the whole pipe, the situation actually gets worse because you're mm -hmm. cutting off the lead pipe at the portion at which the perimeter uh, ends and 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 the the private property of the person's home begins, and that leaches more lead into the water. I'm so glad you brought this up because you're right. It is far worse in terms of trying to fix this problem. And as much money as Biden wants to commit to this, I'll just add on to what you just said. Yes, what they're going to do is they're going to try to replace the lead pipes that are out in the the main you know, pipelines that are underneath right. the streets. But then there's a then there's a pipeline that goes from the main line in the street to the house, okay? Right. You've got to replace those two, but you can't just cut it off because the problem is, is that then you've got all the internal plumbing in everyone's home. And this has been, and I know this firsthand from Flint, mm -hmm. that all the internal piping, plumbing in people's homes is wrecked. From the toxic water and the lead and everything, not just lead, but other toxins that have been brought in over the years into people's homes, all of that plumbing really has to be replaced in the homes. And then once you've replaced the home plumbing, you've got every washing machine, mm -hmm. dishwasher, mm -hmm. shower head, everything that the water went through, every device the water went through in the house has been wrecked and is toxic. And my friends, this is a huge problem that and, that building just. And let me add, what <laughs> if what if the facility uh, is not a, a home, but an apartment complex? And what, what if that landlord is an absentee landlord right. and doesn't really care what the, the quality of the water is to get to its residents? And what if you need consent? to say, we want to come into this facility and, and change all the lead pipes, and you can't find the guy to get consent. Uh, they're, they're, the, the, the point I'm making is that there are so many decisions that need to be made beyond just this straight, uh, here's a fact sheet of 25 pages that has really nice sounding stuff. It's almost like they did a late night bull session of what would be the coolest things that you could do in infrastructure. And they put all this stuff down and, but there is so much that you have to figure out to get to a, a good place. And uh, 
that's where this is going to be right. uh, figured out. Who's going to make those decisions? Is it going to be private consultants? Is it going to be privatized infrastructure uh, financiers? Uh, is it going to be democratically elected officials? Who will make the decisions and what decisions will they make? That's what's going to determine whether this is something revolutionary and transformative or something that inevitably disappoints and, and people think, what did we get for all that money? Let me just also stop right here. For those of you who are listening and saying, Mike, why why are you complaining? This is that He's going to have a hard time getting this passed. The Republicans are all against it. It's yes, it's two trillion dollars, but but baby steps. Let's get this through. Why are you and David d- doing this? And I'll give my answer, and then I want you to give your answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it, my friends, because you you heard from the. I am I. This is coming from someone who has been very supportive of much of what I've seen in these first uh, couple of months or so, and and so I want to encourage the Biden administration to, to no half measures. He keeps saying he wants to go big. Let's not hold back. Let's go all the way. Yes, I'm for that. And you need to actually do that. And we need to get the right bill passed now, because what we've learned with something that everybody liked at the beginning, Obamacare, but we realized it really wasn't universal health care. It really, there's still almost 30 million people that are not covered. This is this half measures. We don't have time anymore. The planet's falling apart. The next pandemic is on its way. And you know that it is in our lifetime. This isn't the last we're going to have to go through something like this. Let's fix this shit now. And why not go for it? Why not go for it? You know, AOC, I saw her the other night. She said $2 trillion, That's nothing. We need a $10 trillion series of projects that can get us where we need to get. So while Joe Manchin and uh, Kirsten Cinema and the uh, more conservative democratic senators are getting all the airtime, you haven't heard much from our side. They, they know we're there. I heard Chuck Todd talk about us today. He said, you know, the left, I know they're listening. They're not going to like any of this. <laughs> so they know we're there because they've seen the direction that Biden has gone in. He didn't go toward Manchin. He went toward Bernie. And so they're all up in arms. Well, we have to get the Republicans on board. Well, yes and no, we don't because we have the votes if the people who are Democrats will act like Democrats. And I think, David, this is why I wanted to have you on because I'm just afraid that the Joe Manchins, and he's not just Joe Manchin, there's probably six or seven of these so-called mm-hmm. moderate uh, Democrats who could get in the way of truly great transformational change happening right now and and it's why those of us on this side and we are the majority of the democratic party that make no mistake about that and and it is women of color and joe biden knows it that put him into office and and we have to be loud and we have to be assertive here we have to uh, this otherwise we're going to lose out on so many things that we could make happen right now so that's why I'm kind of ringing the fire bell here. I would say that what I'm trying to stress is the importance of these details. So when you, when you, most of the time people, they're very busy in their lives. They, 
they see, hey, I, I got a check in the mail. I, I we, we, we have this big number. We're going to do a bunch of infrastructure. We're going to fix fix that bridge that I drive over every day. Uh, and that that sounds pretty good. And, and it, it could very well be. But details matter. And, and, and especially in this case where you have such a small margin for error and the entire Democratic caucus has to be aligned in the Senate in order to get anything passed. The details of what they're going to have to do in order to get that consensus really, really matter. And uh, th- that's why we're, we're at the prospect, at least, trying to put together uh, a list of these things and looking at all of these various policies that have been touted in this particular infrastructure package and, say, and, and just pull them apart and say, how easy is it to do this thing? Or what are they talking about when they're talking about building electric vehicle charging stations all over America? Like what? What? What does it mean to do that? How? What are the challenges in doing that? I read what you said about this about the the charging stations. I did not know, and you pointed this out. Yeah, that it's not just a matter of putting up a little post and some kind of electrical plug outlet right. uh, thing in there. That in fact, is this true that a number of the different car companies that have been doing this, that there isn't one standard plug, there isn't one standard cord, right? And I, mean, I didn't realize that because, you know, uh, 120 years ago, big government said that every electrical outlet in your house, this is just when electricity was starting. So nobody right. knew that the radio was going to be invented or the TV or the computer or the refrigerator or anything. And yet the government said from now on that electrical outlet will have two slits, two holes that these two prongs will go into at the same exact centimeters apart. And it does. And since that day, to whatever is being produced in 2021, mm-hmm. it's the same damn two holes, right? At the same distance apart, like and government made that happen. And and now, right. but we're now we're starting into this century, and you're telling me that that's not the case. It's not the case on electric vehicles. So uh, this standardization, as you say, was was wildly effective, and it, it allowed the consumer electronics industry to know that they could sell something and gave the consumer confidence that anything I buy that fits into an outlet is going to fit into an outlet in my house. However, Tesla has its own proprietary plug for uh, elect- its electric vehicles. Uh, if, and, and Rivian, which is a new uh, truck maker, also has a proprietary plug. So oh, if, if you build one of these charging stations... And you have uh, a, a Tesla, it may not fit with the national charging station infrastructure that's supposed to be built. So it requires government to step in, as you just said, and say, we're going to have a standard plug so that, uh, you know, it's like if if Toyota had a different way to fill the gas tank than Ford or GM did, and you had to find a Toyota filling station when you were out. Uh, it's just not not effective in any way and and uh, so to maximize this ability to uh wherever you are in the united states to be able to charge your uh electric vehicle you have to standardize the process so that's just another decision that needs to be made and we don't we don't think about these i mean I, i certainly didn't know that until my reporter brought that up so 
Uh, it's just one of the, it, that's why the details matter so much on when you're talking about infrastructure, when you're, and, and, and the details matter on who is going to make those decisions. I mean, we have outsourced so much of infrastructure decision-making. I've seen it right here in California. We have, uh, we had all this money for a high-speed rail system and they hired a, a, a ton of consultants to uh, decide the, the, the ways and means of the project. And the project is wildly over budget. And, and, and a line that was supposed to go from Los Angeles to San Francisco in two and a half hours is now going to go from Bakersfield to Merced, which is really effective for the six people that really need to get from Bakersfield to Merced, uh, but not much for everybody else. And, and the consultant kind of takeover of these infrastructure questions had a lot to do with that. And so we have to make a choice here. Uh, are, are we going to allow uh, McKinsey's of the world, the uh, uh, Macquarie, and like, there are all these different privatization companies and public-private partnerships, the Goldman Sachs's of the world. Are we going to allow them to skim off the top of this trillion-dollar bill and uh, you know, make, make their executives fabulously rich? Are we going to use a democratic process to make these decisions and make sure that the contractors that we hire aren't ripping us off and make sure that the, we're getting the best value when we put this investment into our country and into our people? What else, what else do we need to – you have been working on this list. I've, I've been reading your various articles. Mm-hmm. It looks like you're in the middle of it still. Yeah, but yeah. We're, <laughs> it's, pretty it's, much, I mean, the, 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 the plan came out a week ago, so we're not, we're not that far along. Yeah, no, that's, that's okay. I'm not, it was not a criticism. <laughs> I, I, I realize you're not funded by billionaires or think tanks. Exactly. But, but, but seriously, but give, tell us some other examples of this. Yeah, and another good example is – there's a piece in the bill that says we want to electrify all postal trucks, right? So literally every piece of America, there are postal trucks that right now, the average age of the postal truck on the road is about 30 years. Uh, they constantly break down. They get about 10 miles to the gallon. And we could save billions and billions of dollars in fuel and maintenance costs by overhauling these and putting them into an electric vehicle. Well, uh, our friend Louis DeJoy, who is still the Postmaster General, he was Trump's yeah, guy. Not my who, friend. Yeah, maybe not your friend, um, who who uh, you know, was hired last year and, and was responsible for uh, much of the slowdown and the degradation right. of this age-old service that predates the Constitution, he's still in charge. He put together a 10-year plan and he signed a contract with a company to make next-generation vehicles for the U.S. Postal Service. And that contract only allowed 10% of the vehicles to be electric. Uh, and and DeJoy has said, oh, well, we can, we can swap them out later and make them electric. We can convert the vehicles later on. If you just give us enough money, we'll, we'll, we'll electrify the fleet. The other part of this is that Oshkosh, which is the name of this company that got the contract, has never made an electric vehicle in its life. It's a defense contractor. Its prototype is a diesel vehicle, which has all sorts of its own problems, right? And uh, uh, it it just does not have the expertise or has any kind of supply chain for electric Mm. vehicles. Mm. 
Uh, and and the question is, well, why would we stick with Oshkosh uh, to 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 put this together if they have no expertise in the thing that we want them to do? There's also the funny uh, kind of uh, thing that happened where the day before the Postal Service announced this this deal with Oshkosh, a mysterious buyer of stock bought millions and millions of shares in Oshkosh. Uh, and sure enough, the stock shot up when they found out they got the, the U.S. Postal Service contract. So this seems to be a, a, a shady, if not corrupt, company uh, that was involved in some sort of insider trading. Uh, and we're going to rely on this company for uh, uh, the ability to electrify the postal vehicle fleet, which is a no-brainer idea. So there are so many of these kinds of decisions that need to be made. Uh, in the case of of this one, why is Louis DeJoy still making these decisions? Why is he still the, is the postmaster? Question. Jeez. Exactly. Um, and the answer to that is that the USPS uh, Board of Governors picks the postmaster general. It's not that Biden has the choice to choose a postmaster general. Biden chooses the board, and then the board makes the decisions. It's like a board of directors. They choose the CEO, which so is he'll the he'll fix the general. board then, right? He'll fix the board. Well, he has uh, nominated three officials, which would give him a Democratic majority on the board. Mm-hmm. However, the two current Democrats that sit on the board have not really made any whispers that they differ with anything much of of Louis DeJoy's performance, and and a lot of uh, Democrats increasingly are saying what you actually need to do is fire the entire board for dereliction of duty for hiring DeJoy in the first place and allowing him to degrade the Postal Service and then put in an entirely new group that can then choose a new Postmaster General. But that has not happened yet. Well, to those who are listening, everybody who listens to my uh, podcast, uh, they make a daily or weekly call to Congress. Mm -hmm. And and so, my friends, uh, put this on your list for this week uh, to tell the members of Congress and to tell the White House that uh, Louis DeJoy, our so-called postmaster uh, must be removed and replaced. And it has to start with replacing the entire, what's it called? The board of what? The board of governors, the postal service board of governors. Postal service board of governors, fire them all and replace them with people who care about uh, us and, and, and how we get our mail. So don't forget to do that. Everybody 202-224-3121, you know, you know, the number, you know what we have to do here. What else, David? What else uh, in this in this uh, well, infrastructure bill that uh, maybe we're not that we need to fight hard for? Our voices need to be heard so that they don't dumb this thing down into some moderate uh, piece of nothing. Well, I mean, one of the big things is uh, the 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 parts of the bill that try to revive domestic manufacturing. Once again, something I know you care about a lot. Um, there, there's really only a small part here that says that they will revitalize manufacturing and secure U.S. supply chains, which is something we saw really go awry during the pandemic uh, to, the, to the extent that we had shortages on things like toilet paper and on things like uh, medical supplies uh, because we don't create those. We don't make those at home. We have allowed these long supply chains, uh, a lot of them going to China uh, to predominate and any kind of disruption 
can magnify its effects because they're they're coming from centralized manufacturing hubs, and uh, so so any little problem just uh, causes a ripple effect. So how are we going to do this? I mean, what 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 are what are we going to do? To not only uh, you have to deal with obviously trade policy in order to fix that, right? To ensure that American workers get a, a fair shake relative to foreign workers, uh, uh, you have to uh, incentivize insourcing, bringing supply chains back to the United States, uh, and uh, sometimes you have to create markets in order to do that. Um, there is a, a bill out there to create an office of manufacturing within the White House to coordinate all of these strategies that you have to do to build an industrial base back in the United States again. Uh, and it's an interesting bill that uh, could, uh, you know, you, you kind of need this coordinating function because you're dealing with so many different inputs. Uh, if you don't have that, then uh, you, can, you can sort of say, uh, we want domestic supply chains to come back to the United States, uh, but you, you have to deal with the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and all of the in industry forces that are whispering in their ears. And you have to deal with the, the Commerce Department and, and, and all of the industry forces whispering in their ears. Uh, you, you have to deal with just all these diff disparate sources. And uh, so I, I think that we need to understand better if we're going to sink money from the federal level into uh, revitalizing American manufacturing, we have to make sure that we're doing it in such a way that's coordinated and deliberate and actually does the job. How do we deal with the filibuster here? I, I noticed uh, mm -hmm. today the Senate uh, parliamentarian has now ruled on uh, the Democrat side that, that he will allow a number of these things in this infrastructure bill uh, to go through uh, and with, you know, all you need is the 51 votes. Yeah. Um, but so it, it, it's just yeah. such a bizarre system. Right? I know. So it's so not democratic. You need a, a 60 vote threshold for all legislation, except there's this one kind of sneak attack that you can do this one yeah. special thing, but you can only do it once every year. Well, now what, what Chuck Schumer has done with the parliamentarian is got the parliamentarian to agree that maybe you can do it two times in a year, that you can sort of revise what it does. It's called budget reconciliation. I don't want to bore everybody, but yeah, uh, what it's about is <laughs> that it's, it's you're using the budget process yes. to put through uh, a piece of legislation through a majority vote because that's the way the process was set up. And what Schumer has put together is this idea that what if we change the budget in the middle of the year? Can we then do a piece of legislation that only needs 50 votes for that changed budget? And the parliamentarian said, yes. Mm. So now there are two special votes that you can do every year. The problem is they all have to be budget related. So everything we're talking about with respect to voting rights, uh, uh, things that we're talking about with respect to immigration, uh, uh, with respect to uh, ending gerrymandering or uh, doing public financing for elections. The climate Very emergency, et Climate stuff yeah. sometimes, potentially. It's hard to fit those into a budgetary context. You can do it, but we saw this problem with the minimum wage increase, right? 
the parliamentarian said, oh, nope, minimum wage increase, even though it does affect federal revenues, that's not the main thing that it does. And uh, we're not going to let that into the American Rescue Plan. So, so now you're at the whim of the parliamentarian who's a guy like this, whose name we don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Ask me his you, name. You so much don't know his name. I don't know his her, name. It's a her. That's oh why you don't know. That's how much you don't know his name. Her that makes name it even is, worse. Her name is Elizabeth McDonough. Elizabeth but, McDonough? <laughs> yes. The Irish Elizabeth. <laughs> what is going on? But why is she elevated to like the Oracle of Delphi, where, where whatever decision she makes is what Americans get? Like literally she made a decision that deprived 30 million people from getting a raise. Oh. I mean, that, that is a tremendous amount of power, and it's unnecessary. The, the way that we could do this is say, why do we need, why don't we resort to uh, the, 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 the terrible program that every other industrialized country has, which is majority rule, where if a majority decides that that's what they want, then that's what they get. Uh, nowhere else in, in, in the world, for, uh, for all intents and purposes, do you see a legislature which is so tied to the whims of the minority as, as this one. And so, yes, we can, we can figure out and manufacture end runs around the filibuster using this reconciliation process, or we could just end the filibuster and end the mind games the endless creativity yes. that we have to figure out just to get something through Congress. Put that on the list, too, of what the demand when you call Capitol Hill or there the White go. House. Hey, David, if you, if you don't mind, just if you could hang on just for a minute here. I'd, I need to thank our underwriter for today's episode of Rumble. And that underwriter happens to be Netflix and their beautiful Oscar-nominated documentary, My Octopus Teacher. The film was directed by Pippa Arlish and James Reed and produced by Craig Foster. This is really one of the more visually stunning movies. And I mean movies, not just documentaries, movies that you are ever going to see. It is definitely a work of beauty. My Octopus Teacher follows the story of Craig Foster, who, while swimming in the waters off the South African coast in the Great African Sea Forest, as it's called, meets an unlikely teacher while he's swimming, a young octopus. Okay, now just stay with me here, all right? This movie has never been made. This is the most amazing thing. So after Craig starts visiting this octopus's den every day for months, he eventually wins her trust. As the octopus shares with Craig the secrets of her world, Craig undertakes an incredible transformation. It made me think so much about how I wish I thought more about how we're treating that animal kingdom and what the blowback has been on us because we have not behaved as good neighbors. I'm telling you, this film, it was shot over eight years. Eight years. They had 3,000 hours of footage. They edited this down to a beautiful, wonderful hour and a half, incredible film that documents a unique friendship and an interaction with animal intelligence like we've never seen before. In addition to its Oscar nomination, Oscars are coming up here at the end of the month, it's also been nominated by the Directors Guild and by BAFTA, which are the British Oscars. It's already won the Producers Guild Award for Best Documentary, the Critics' Choice 
Award for Best Cinematography in a Documentary, and the International Documentary Association Award for Best Musical Score. So it checks all the boxes. So do yourself a favor and watch My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. I have a link for it right here on the description page of this episode of my podcast. You can go right there. And I want to thank Netflix for supporting my voice, supporting this podcast, and most importantly, for supporting independent voices in cinema, both fiction and nonfiction, and works of beauty like my octopus teacher. You wrote today, um, uh, this is an interesting line. I just was wondering what you meant by it. I think I know what you meant, but but it was so like, you don't see ever see a headline like this. You wrote, public investment can't be a jackpot for private thieves. So, and, and, and this reiterates a little bit of what I was talking about, but the way we do infrastructure in this country is that we either hire a bunch of contractors to make the designs, do the engineering, uh, build out the project, and uh, bring it to completion, or we do it what is called a public-private partnership, where not only do we have private, pe- uh, private industry build the thing and design the thing, but then they also manage the infrastructure, right? Uh, this is how you get toll roads, private toll roads. Uh, or like the thing in Chicago with the parking meters, where they sold the parking meters to a private company. And uh, the private company started raising the prices, uh, naturally, on the parking meters. And, uh, and, and, and they suddenly were cut away from democratic control, even though it was something we all use. So we have endured this privatization. And if you think back to Reaganism, I mean, Reaganism was certainly about depriving public investment, depriving welfare, uh, cutting taxes, building up the military. Those were the pillars of Reaganism. But so was privatization. He wanted to take government functions and put them in private hands. And when you do that, inevitably, the private company isn't doing it as a charity, right? They want to be paid and paid handsomely for the service of operating these, these, these public functions. And so they have that layer of profit on it. And the only way they get that layer of profit is if they uh, skimp on labor, skimp on safety, skimp on the, 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 the construction. Uh, there, there's, there's, for, for most of these things, even though we've been fed the lie, as you said, that, that private enterprise does things more efficiently than government, the last 40 years and the inability of, 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 of these kinds of things to pay off shows that the opposite may be true. And uh, once, you, once you build in that layer of profit, you're getting a degraded service. And this is a public commons, something that we all pay for and all are supposed to benefit from. So when I say private thieves, I'm talking about the privatizers. I'm talking about the consultants. I'm talking about the contractors. And in the Reagan slash neoliberal era, these forces have predominated in terms of infrastructure and in terms of the, the public commons. And we need to get back to a position where government is in charge of, of, of these operations. 
They're keeping an eye on the public treasury and making sure that, that we aren't ripped off when uh, we have contractors uh, go wild on things like uh, the F-35, which uh, was, was, was about as much money that was spent on the F-35 as was spent in all the infrastructure in this upcoming bill, uh, and the plane doesn't fly. Right. Um, uh, so we, we need to rein that in. We need to re- reverse the project of reversing Reaganism must also be a project of reversing privatizations and really dominance by the private sector on the public commons. And so that's what I was talking about. What's so frustrating to me is that the majority of the American people, according to every single poll are on our side, our side, meaning the side that believes in the things that we've been discussing on this podcast today, but also mm-hmm. believing that women should be paid the same as men, uh, mm-hmm. believing that the climate crisis is real, uh, believing that the minimum wage should be $15 an hour, and that we should have a Canadian-style health care system where everybody is covered. All of that. The American people are with us. So why don't we have this stuff? Why, why don't we have people in Congress representing the true majority of the country? Why are we still dinking around with all of this worrying about Mitch McConnell and this and that and the power that he shouldn't have, doesn't have, is not given to him by the will of the American people. What do I, I just, you know, before we leave, I want you to tell us what we need to do to, and how do we both nudge Biden and his people uh, with, you know, the, you know, the, the iron hand that's inside that velvet glove, mm. but, but, but let's try the velvet glove as much as we can, but it just, because honest to God, uh, this is our moment, David. And if we fail, if we fail, like we, let's just be honest, liberals, lefties, kumbaya people, all <laughs> we have, you know, we should have been farther down the road by now. Because we have the people on our side. And yet, time and time again, we let the more, quote, moderate conservative voices on our side of the fence take over. And and it's really not so much that they're conservative, is that they still believe in the profit motive. They still believe in the corporate rule of the country. And that's the thing they don't want to mess with. Yeah. I mean, I think the larger problem here is that for 40 years, we've had it banged into our head that government can't do anything right, that the private sector is, is the, the, the most efficient uh, force that, that uh, has ever been known to man, and it's, it's, it's made this country what it is today. And, and there's this mythology that has built up, and it's built up on the right, and it's built up uh, among among Democrats too, and you talked about it about about what what the Clinton administration did and what to a certain extent the Obama administration did, and Biden is coming in and he wants to sort of throw back to the uh, massive public investment, uh, uh, support for labor, uh, kind of ways of of you know maybe a Truman Democrat, maybe going back to maybe an FDR Democrat. But we don't have the structures in place to carry that out just yet. And there's a mindset that needs to be changed. And the mindset is that government can be a force for good, 
that you can let government do government functions because they do them better than a self-interested, profit-motive-directed private uh, enterprise. And uh, we have to sort of relearn those capabilities of government. I think that the COVID relief bills have helped. You know, people got 600 bucks in the mail or, or, or 12, I guess in the recent one, 1400 bucks in the mail and, uh, or, or they got it directly into their bank account and they were able to spend it the next day and, and it, it worked out for them. And, uh, they, they, they liked the idea that government was coming to their aid in, in a crisis. And the truth is, is that there have been people in crisis in the United States for the last 40 years. I mean, uh, uh, there was this carping uh, among some parts of the center left, like Larry Summers, about how uh, what, we didn't even need this, this $2 trillion uh, uh, COVID relief bill to fill the, the gap uh, in, in, in spending, the output gap, the, 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 uh, the economic gap created by the COVID uh, crisis. Why are, why are we doing this? Well, the truth is, is that we've had that gap for the last 40 years. And uh, the, the $1,400 a person is just a, a drop in the bucket to fill that gap. And the, the, the benefits for unemployment is just a drop in the bucket. And the, and the help that we gave on the child tax credit is only for one year and also just a drop in the bucket. And uh, so we need to reorient ourselves towards a time where government was the force that solved problems that were too big for the individual to solve. And that's a good way to put it. I, I, I think that I think that Biden wants to do that. I don't mm -hmm. know that he always knows how to do that. And it's up to us who did move the conversation and move the Democratic Party to a place where they are willing to make these efforts and make these attempts to figure out the details of it and the reason and, and, and the ways that it can be done effectively. Because if it's not done effectively, as you said, uh, it's going to be discredited. And uh, if it's discredited once again, and we move into another 40 years in the wilderness, uh, it, the, the, the hole that we'll be putting ourselves in will just be incalculable. Well, I, I hope President Biden is listening. I have been told he listens to every third podcast. Uh, <laughs> and he, he, he says he prefers the shorter ones, uh, which I, I completely understand. Or, or anything, anytime I have Robert De Niro on, that's a good one. <laughs> but, but, but no, but seriously, if you are listening or if you work for him, please hear us. This is it. This is the time. And let's do it right. Let's, let's not let the consultants and all the people who are lining up at the trough to make money from this. Let's, let's do this the right way. Let's give it the exact amount of money that it needs. Let's all of us as Americans pull together. I mean, seriously, Dave, we all, I don't know if you, have you been vaccinated yet? Have you got your, uh, I have, I'm uh, I'm a week in your so weekend. I have my okay. first shot. Okay. Just don't no spring break yet for you. And, uh, and no, <laughs> and no, correct. and no Texas Rangers games. <laughs> but but no, but seriously, folks, if you've had your first shot or your second shot or whatever, you've just experienced socialized medicine. Exactly. Just, you just have for the first time. And I'm not and I'm sorry if you're on Medicare or Medicaid. That's a form 
of that, but it's not that. It's it, Think about, I thought this when I went to get my shot, I didn't have to whip out anything, no card, no ID, no health insurance card, nothing. Just I had to give them my name and, and my date of birth. And they rolled up my sleeve and that was, and it was like, not, no money out of my pocket for the, no, nope, free. You're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, this process of hundreds of millions of Americans going in and, and getting something that they desperately need. Desperately, yes. And, and having it be that seamless and effective. Yeah. But and they, walking <laughs> out, it, it's, we, it's something we should be uplifting. Yes, we've always been told, though, that this form of democratic socialism or this kind of government help, like health care, for instance, as a human right, that, oh, the bureaucracy, oh, it'll never work, it'll never get done, you know? And you, we all have just, and we are just experiencing it right now, the so-called awful bureaucracy has put two shots in my arm, free of charge, <laughs> and, and I'm going to live. <laughs> I'm going to live because of socialized medicine. I don't want to hear another why about this again. And, 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 and I had, you know, Oh, Biden, remember during the debates, Biden was all, no, I'm against uh, Bernie's uh, uh, Medicare for all plan. We need a, the best kind of insurance is the employer driven insurance. The one that right. is provided to you by your right. employer. And as soon as March 10th <laughs> last year happened, and and millions, tens of millions were out of work. What right. went first when you were out of work? Your health yeah, yeah. insurance dead yeah. on arrival. Yep. And that was it. And boy, did that, was that a lesson? This has not been discussed much. The lesson that the average person saw that, oh my God, my employer-based health insurance is not always going to be there. I was told it would be. No, you know what's always going to be there? That postal truck going down your street. <laughs> that government... That government agent that comes to your door every single day, that's what's going to be there. We, the people of Foreign by the People, we're going to be there. That's what we should be depending on ourselves, our government, our government, not the Exxon government, our government. It just seems so, I mean, I mean, I look, I just have a high school education, so maybe I don't, I'm not thinking deeply enough here, but to me, it seems like, that if these shots went that well, this quickly, once we had a real leader, once we had a real, and he had to take over a broken or non-existent system and within days turned it around and within weeks got us our shots. And now he's doubled the, he's going to buy his hundred days. He's going to double the number of shots. Doesn't it make you think? And if you read David's pieces on the 100 days here, it made me think, what else can we do? <laughs> what else? If we did this, what else can we do? I think we can do a lot. I think we can do a lot. And David, I just thank you for your writing on this. You are right on top of this right now. I encourage everyone again, go to the link here on my site, go to the American prospect. Yeah. Prospect.org prospect.org. My friends, I'm not kidding. This is the kind of thing you need to be reading right now. And it's written for an American public. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to get something out of this. You're going to pass it around. And the editor-in-chief here, David Dan, has been with me on this episode of Rumble. And David, I'm going to give you the last word here. If there's one last thing you'd like to say uh, to the American people right now, 
before you go, uh, what would that be? Well, it was great being here. And, you know, I mean, I, I think that the, the circumstances of the pandemic, as you say, has, has really changed us. It's, it's taught us to, to respect and, and, and appreciate the, the, the abilities of government to get us out of a hole. And, uh, and certainly in the last, in the last few months, it's, it's, it's taught us that. And we need to just keep that going. And, and, you know, there's an old saying that you might not be interested in politics, but politics is very interested in you. Yes. And, uh, uh, you can't disengage at this moment. I mean, this is, this is actually the moment to double down and engage more. We thought, uh, Trump's gone. We don't have to, uh, you know, uh, I can, I can go back to my life, whatever, uh, uh, that means, but we need to stay engaged. I mean, the, the, the engaged populace that brought us the end of the Trump era also brought us this American rescue plan. It's going to bring us this big infrastructure plan. And with any luck, it's going to bring us, bring it to us in a way that's really, really effective and really present in our lives. And so you have to stay engaged. And, and I, I mean, your audience is probably the last people I have to tell to stay engaged, but uh, just in general terms, you got to talk to your friends, you got to talk to your neighbors, you got to make sure that uh, the reversals that are already being attempted by Republicans uh, uh, are, are, are not what carries the day. What carries the day is uh, seeing a government that is actually operating on behalf of its citizens again. Yes, uh, that's so beautifully put. And this is what we've learned during this pandemic. And my friends, I want to I want to say to you that while we've learned these lessons, they've come at a horrific cost. Mm. 555,000 people to date have given their lives. They must not die in vain. They died so that we'd wake up. They died so that we would do things differently post-pandemic. Let's make sure that they didn't die in vain. Let's take what we've learned and seize the moment and make this country what it can and should be. And yes, you're right. Obviously, a lot of people who listen to this uh, podcast are already foot soldiers in the army uh, for a more just America. But uh, it, it doesn't hurt us to be reminded. And you, my friend, has, have given us a lot of uh, facts, information, and a way of looking at this that we can share with others. And I thank you most gratefully for the work that you're doing. David Dane, Editor-in-Chief of the American Prospect, Prospect.org. It's on my website uh, and on the podcast page here. Thank you so much, uh, David. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you to my executive producer, Basil Hamden, to my editor, Nick Quaz, and to all of you who are participants in this participatory democracy. Uh, we are going to do this. We are going to make this happen. I so believe this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, for all the optimism here. Um, and uh, it, But it's, uh, it's, it's coming right from my heart. And, and, and I've lived long enough now uh, to know when shit isn't going to happen. And I've seen when it does. And we're in one of those moments where it's happening. Seize it, uh, and let's let's go forward. Thank you, everybody, and uh, we will uh, talk to you again uh, here uh, in the in the coming days. A lot is going on. There's a lot of work for all of us to do. I'm Michael Moore, 
and this is Rumble. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard in love. All I wanted was to break your walls. All you ever did was wreck me. Yeah, you, you wreck me. I put you high up in the sky and now you're not 